my role as CEO is to make sure we all have a high level of ambition to be successful. We understand what success looks like. We're all pointed in the same direction. And then I just want to enable people. We've got great people. We've hired great leaders. And I just want to step out of their way and help them be successful. And so what that means is let's really hold a high bar. Let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's understand what accountability means. And let's not be squishy about when we don't meet the bar we set for ourselves. Let's be clear when we meet it, when we don't meet it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. When you were saying like you grew up in real life, yeah. Is there any part of you that gets nervous with your kids that they won't develop the coat of armor that you did? Where'd you grow India, right? Grew up in India. Do you think about that? I think about it. My wife and I grew up in India. Yeah. And I grew up in India at a time when uh, it's not the India of today. It was in a time when India was a closed economy. Yeah. And so there wasn't a lot. There wasn't access to a lot of stuff. My kids are shocked when I tell them we had one... TV station. And actually later in life, we got a second one. It was this huge amount of excitement. Oh my God, a second TV station. Who could watch so much TV? That's crazy. And they're like, well, what if you don't want to watch what's on? I'm like, well, then you do something else because that is what the option is. You get to watch what's on. And so their heads explode when they hear these things. But they have access to so much information, so much content. In some ways, we were struggling to understand the world to get access to, you know, what is happening around the world. And so I think I'm an optimist and I think progress is a good thing in general. I'm, I think my kids are much better off than I am. The one place where I generally, I don't get super nostalgic. I think actually the march of technology is generally in a positive direction. The one place I do get a bit nostalgic is because we didn't have so many things, we didn't constantly shift our attention from like app to app or just like overstimulated because there wasn't that much stimulus. Mm -hmm. And so now I see my kids, you know, just like digital addiction and like kids stop with YouTube, do something else. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that option. I think that was the good thing. I think you kind of build deeper attention and you spend more time on things because that's what was available. And now there's like a hundred things that you could spend your time on and kind of get spoiled for choice there's downsides to that. But you can fix that. I'd rather have lots of choices and then like, okay, it's a good problem to have. Well, okay, which of these hundred things do I need to do? I think that's better than like, I got no choices right. and you know, I'm going to play with my rock because that's what I have. Well, it's funny because in some ways you're responsible for some of the technologies that are keeping your kids busy now. You built Chrome at Google. You had a very heavy hand in pushing technology forward. Yeah. Ah, it's just kind of a weird Well, paradox. I think, you know, I think technology is not good or bad. These are just tools that increase the space of possibility for everyone. And then what you do with them is something that everyone and we as society need to grapple with. So is the web a net positive in the world? 100%. There's access to information. There's democratization of just innovation happening across the world. 
I saw firsthand as emerging markets, places like India, Indonesia, Nigeria, came online for the first time with a lower cost smartphone device. It was just a whole new universe of possibility got created for billions of people around the world, thanks to the web. So that's a positive, that's a good thing. And so we need to make sure we are moving things in a positive direction. We're giving people access to technology. And then there are always side effects. There's always challenges. There's always kind of guardrails and boundaries. And we got to navigate through that as well. Are your parents still alive? Yeah. Are they in India still? Yeah, they're still in India, yes. What was it like growing up there? I grew up at a time, so this India was a very closed economy until 1991. Yeah. I grew up in the 80s. When I grew up, there wasn't access to a lot of things. It wasn't a very globally open place. Like I was kidding with my kids the other day. I was like, there was one kind of shoe that everyone bought to go to school in. There was one kind of school shoe. If you wanted cereal, there's one kind of cereal. That's what you got. We were hungry for information, but there weren't that many books available. So we'd go scour secondhand bookstores to get access to books, to just to read more, to learn more. There was no internet. So it was hard. We were curious. I was curious. My friends were curious. And we were all trying to figure out, like, how do we learn more about the world, about different topics, about different things? And now it's so open, so easy. Everyone has the access to the world's information at their fingertips. It's amazing. If I look back on my childhood self and I try to explain what today's world would look like, I think I would not be able to do it. Me, 30 years ago, would have no conception off the internet and what it could do. Did you have dinner with your family? I did, yeah. We used to have dinner together, yes. What was the topic of conversation at the dinner table? What would your parents ask you about? They would ask me about school. Was it achievement-oriented? You know, it wasn't as achievement-oriented as many families are in India. My parents were more... Indian and Persian culture are not too dissimilar in the sense that there's a lot of drive. So I was always a little bit different in the sense that I had a lot of different interests. And so I didn't like to get pigeonholed into one thing. I liked to read. I liked to write. Even from early on, I really liked reading and writing and I, I liked learning about different things. And so back in those days, it's different now, but back in those days, you kind of had to pick a lane pretty early on and stick to it. And that's actually one of the reasons I came to the U.S., Because I was in India, lots of different interests. And I was like, you know, I don't want to pick one thing and just do that one thing. And then someone told me about liberal arts education. I'd never heard about it before. And I was like, what's liberal arts education? That sounds interesting. And then I learned more about it. And I'm like, wow, that's what I want to do. Great. And that's how I ended up in the U.S. Because I really like this idea of liberal arts and having a broad base of knowledge and just having an open mind and soaking in different sources of knowledge and information. Have you tried to move your parents here? I have not. No, they're well settled there. They've been there their entire lives. No chance. I don't think so, no. Yeah. Yeah. When you came to the States, yeah. how old were you? I was 18. For school? Undergrad, yeah. You went to Hamilton. Hamilton, upstate New York, yeah. Then Columbia for your master's in comp sci. Yeah, I was actually in a PhD program. It was in AI. So I've been thinking PhD about- PhD in AI. PhD in AI yeah. way back when, like yeah. in the 90s. But then uh, I dropped out and got my master's and dropped out and didn't finish the PhD. It's funny you say the pigeonhole thing. It's one of the notes that I have, because I've listened to everything you've done and I've read all about you. And the last podcast that I needed to listen to was this morning on my bike ride. And I couldn't get rid of this thought that I don't know what to peg you as. And I'll tell you why. 
Because on the one hand, you're going to Stanford and giving talks about AI. And the talks that you're giving are around the responsibility of AI. And then the next thing is you talking about your experience building Chrome. So people ask you about that and your experience at Google. Then there is a lot of questions that people ask you about the discipline of product management. You're not even a product manager in the same capacity. And you're a CEO now. The way that I thought about it was like, if you were the product, the product marketing of Rahul, I had a really hard time putting my finger on. Does that observation make sense? And I only bring this up because I couldn't pigeonhole you. I take that as a good thing and a compliment. Listen, I'm not a predictable person. That's good. Absolutely. But yeah, look, I think if there's a common theme, I would say that I care a lot about how I spend my time and working on meaningful, impactful things. When I joined Chrome in the early days, there was a lot of skepticism. Even inside Google, there was skepticism. Another browser? Who needs another browser? There's Internet Explorer. If you don't like Microsoft or whatever, there's Firefox, there's Safari. What does the world need another browser for? But I love the idea and the mission of improving the web platform. And I signed up for that mission and I stayed there for 10 years to do it. Doing meaningful things actually take time and they're hard. That's the other thing I've learned. Grit is a good word to describe doing hard things well. When I joined Grammarly, I signed up because the mission of improving lives by improving communication really resonated with me. So that's really the motivating factor is how do I use technology to improve the world, make people's lives better at scale? The discipline of product management is one way to do it. There's many ways to do it. You can be an engineer and do it. You can be a product manager and do it. And the product manager lens is really about understanding user needs and really putting yourself in the shoes of the user and saying, what is the problem that this person has that we could uniquely solve? And let's try to do that at scale and do that really well. That's what product management is. Yeah. When you get asked to talk about Grammarly yeah. or Google, yeah. you definitely go to mission and purpose. That is absolutely where you go. And I believe it. This is what you've gleaned from all the... Uh, yeah, I know. Like, I believe it. I think that's accurate. Yeah. Like, I believe that you really deeply align with the mission. And I think that one of the explanations that you give when you left Google, because you had an amazing ride and you were a very senior person at Google, responsible for a lot, probably making a shitload of money. And it was like, you know, you've been there for a while. It's a different job than like being the CEO of a startup-ish. Yep. Can we have a mission that is not tied to product and technology? Your mission is very involved in the ways that the problem that your technology is solving wraps around customers. And I think the reason that you describe going to Grammarly was because that mission of helping improve the way that people communicate resonates with you, which I understand. Like my mother definitely needs Grammarly. I'm also a very proud customer of Grammarly. Glad to hear it. That's awesome. Love it. But I wonder in an alternate universe, you probably had more people working for you at Google than you do at Grammarly. And you were probably in some ways impacting their lives and just as meaningful of a way, giving them opportunities and career and all that. Can't you couch impact and meaning in different ways? It makes a lot of sense. This is very long-winded, but it makes a lot of sense to me because you're a technologist. And so you are very grounded in what technology can do for you. Because that's what I know to yeah, do yeah. well. That's not the only thing. Many totally. people can have impact in lots of different ways. Yeah. But this is the way I have impact that I can choose to 
spend my time. Has it always been that way? Has the tech always gotten you really excited? The tech has always gotten me excited. I'm a technologist at heart. I trained as a computer scientist, mm -hmm. but liberal arts. I care about the context in which tech operates. Tech is now so pervasive in our lives that I think it's really important. When I talk about responsible AI, it comes from a place of, I want me, myself, but I want all of us in the tech industry to embrace the idea that we have a responsibility to do this well, because it really touches people's lives in very deep ways. And we can't be cavalier about it. We can't just throw it over the wall and say, here's a cool thing that the tech enables. Let's see what happens. You got to think it through. You got to make sure you're solving real problems. The tech is important. The tech is a foundation. That's what I love. But the context in which the tech is operating is important. And that's a much more holistic view of what is the user? What is the problem you're solving? How do we do it well? Let's make sure that we are not moving towards unintended consequences. And we are doing this with kind of a broad holistic vision of how this is going to get used in the world in reality. And I bet you take that responsibility especially seriously because you've seen the technology that you've create be used by your kids when they're waiting in line for a bathroom. Yeah. You know, like I bet you, you take that seriously because you've seen the, the impact that it can have at scale from the work that you did at Google. That's the thing, right? You take AI, you just take kind of all the buzz around AI. What I see in the conversation too often is AI is fantastic. AI is going to be just full steam ahead. Let's move forward and let's not worry about the consequences. But AI can cause real harm. I don't know if you saw John Oliver did an AI special like maybe six months ago or maybe a year no. ago. He picked on using AI for job screening process. And it was just a, you know, lots of bias in the process, underlying bias in the training data, et cetera. But the saddest thing in that John Oliver special, highly, it's very entertaining. He's, he's very good. But the saddest thing was there was some person from one of these job search websites saying, you know, my best advice to job applicants is don't stand out. When people tell you that you should dress up your accomplishments or should use non-standard resume templates to make your resume stand out when it's in a pile of resumes, that's awful advice. The only job your resume has is to be comprehensible to the software or robot that is reading it because that software or robot is going to decide whether or not a human ever gets their eyes on it. That's just really awful. That's so dystopian. It takes away our agency. And so AI has real harm. So I'm not a fan of the Pollyanna, like AI is fantastic, it's going to solve everything, let's just move forward. But then on the other hand, I also see existential risk, let's shut it all down, moratorium. And that's not great either, because AI is very helpful. AI is solving the biggest problems we have in our world today, things like global warming, things like drug discovery. So I don't find these extreme arguments helpful. That's where responsibility comes from. AI is a tool. It's our job. It's a very powerful tool. It is the most powerful technological tool we have in the world today. And it's our responsibility to take that tool, to understand its power, and to harness it responsibly to solve real user problems. And that's where my responsible AI push comes from. In fact, if you've heard this, you may have heard me say, I wish AI had been renamed instead of artificial intelligence. We called it augmented intelligence because AI really is meant to augment us, to augment our potential, to augment human capabilities. And augmented intelligence to me is actually a truer representation of what we want the tech to do than artificial intelligence, which leads down to all these, I feel like these rat holes of 
Is it conscious? Is it not conscious? I want this thing to be a, a utility and a tool for me to be better. I think that's very well said. I don't actually understand what artificial intelligence is. Like, is that a thing? Back in your day when you joined Google in 2007, it was the internet. We don't call it, I'm not going on the internet now. I go to a place that I can use. I can go to airbnb.com and I'm using that webpage to solve a problem for me, Yeah. to go do something for me. Don't you think the conversation, we're just in this little like bubble of time where it's so hypey that all we know are these acronyms. But in the not so distant future, aren't we going to be talking about the applications, the ways that people consume this technology? 100%. By the way, AI can mean different things at different moments in time. For a couple of years ago, it was all deep learning. Now when people say AI, I think usually what they mean is generative AI, which is a very specific type of AI that has recently become super successful. The hype is real. I've been thinking about AI for a long time and the capabilities of these foundation models are incredible, really astounding and just exciting to see. But that's just a piece of technology that ultimately needs to be harnessed responsibly to solve real problems. So that's how I feel like this is how tech evolves. There's a phase of hype and there's excitement and then the hard work of, all right, well, how do I make it useful starts. And that's what we're focused on at Grammarly is let's make sure we can harness all of this tech to actually solve useful problems. Yeah, it's funny because if you look at the data of AI, AI, put it in air quotes, but what ChatGPT and OpenAI are doing, let's just couch the conversation in that. There was this insane path to 100 million users, took a month or whatever. And so you look at all the graphs and it beat WhatsApp and it beat Instagram and it beat Telegram, it beat everything, right? Yep. Then over the last couple of months... If you look at the Dow Mao, the retention data, it doesn't look that good. The frequency with which people are back on ChatGPT is not very high relative to some of the other tools that we're used to. And so we're starting to now get into the reality phase of things where the hard work begins. To me, it's not super surprising to see how this is playing out because let's just look at the reality of our lives for a second. All of us, we struggle with just consuming all the information that's coming at us from all these different sources. I don't know about you, but I struggle to keep on top of email, Slack, documents that I have to read, wiki pages. There's just so much stuff. And actually there's data to back it up. We are spending more and more time writing, consuming information, trying to communicate with each other. And it's getting worse, not better. And I think that this is my lived experience. Now you take AI and you say, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put AI into every app and every box. And when I say AI, I mean generative AI, this new tech that's being deployed everywhere. You put it into every box. And what you're going to get is you're going to get the cost of content creation has now just gone to zero. And so you're going to get a ton more content. But more content is not the thing we need. We're drowning in too much content already. So who's going to read all this content? Like, where's it going to go? How is this going to play out? And so it doesn't quite add up to me. This is, to me, the clearest sign of the fact that we need to mature the solutions leveraging AI to actually solve real problems. It's not about more content. It's about just doing things better. It's about communicating more effectively. And that's the business we're in. Yeah, I think that's well said. What's something that you 
believe about AI that most people would disagree with or will agree with in, call it five to 10 years from now? My prediction is AI is just going to become such a foundational element of how everything is done, how we use our tools, how we're productive, how science is actually uh, makes progress, that it'll probably cease to be a word that is in common use. People will not really understand what you mean when you say AI. Similar to internet. Similar to internet, exactly. And I actually believe that Grammarly is one of the OG AI companies. Yeah, it is. Um, Sneaky. That's not who you think of, if that makes sense. If you were still at Google working on Chrome, not working for a badass AI company, would you feel the same way? Would you be saying the same things? I think so. I mean, I feel like there's a core, I'm at a point in my career where I do have a set of core beliefs and a set of things that I really care about. And uh, this is independent of the job I have or the uh, what I work on. I want to make tech a force for good in the world. I want to do this responsibly. I joined Grammarly because I really do believe in our mission to help people communicate more effectively. AI is a kind of a very broad term. So in the early days, Grammarly was all about the rules of language. And we have a lot of linguists who are still on staff helping us just understand how English, which is the language we support, works, like how it's constructed, what the rules of the game are. Then we went into deep learning to help us with other things like tone detection, being clearer in your communication, beyond the nuts and bolts of grammar. And now with generative AI, we can actually help people across a much broader swath of communication tasks. So it's all part of a journey and different AI technologies are coming in and helping us at different points along the way, but AI is just a means to an end. AI is not the end. AI is just, hey, I want to help people communicate better. And now there's a new technology innovation that helps me do that. Let me figure out the best way to incorporate that into the solution I provide to users. Yeah. Ali Godzi, the Databricks CEO and founder, yeah, is like, look, today it's LLMs. That's the way that we think of AI. Yeah. He's like, I'm not convinced that we're not going to get rid of the first L. I'm not sure it's going to be large language models. And then he was like, I'm also not convinced we're not going to get rid of the second L, that it's going to be language that we use as the way to interface. It's fascinating. There's so many different dimensions to this. So one question is, is it going to be one model to rule them all? Is it going to be just many small, specialized, fine-tuned for specific task type models? That seems to be the way the industry is going is kind of fine-tuned models for specific tasks. Another big interesting thing that I'm very curious to see how it plays out, and I have a specific point of view here, is open source versus closed source. Now, back in my Chrome days, you know, we really invested in open source and make the web is just an open platform. And I think AI is such an important piece of technology that I personally would love to see an open source community developer on AI. Facebook has done this. There's another one coming out of the UAE, the Falcon model. So I think it hasn't fully played out yet. I don't quite know where it's going to end up, but a vibrant open source AI movement, I think is fantastic for us at Grammarly, but also I think for society at large. Yeah, I think that's fair. Your kids, how do they interact with, I assume, ChatGPT? My older son actually is a Grammarly user. So he uses Grammarly. Okay. Yeah. So he uses Grammarly and uses generative. It's through like applications. It's through applications. You know, yeah. you're writing an email or you're using Google Doc and you can use Grammarly to help you craft your message. Grammarly, for those that don't know, 
was ranked by CB Insights as one of the top 10 most valuable U.S. startups, $12.8 billion valuation, good time to raise in November of 21. You're not going to really be able to answer this, but this feels like a really good company to go public. There is no way that you're telling me that in the last three days, you have not had, as the CEO of Grammarly, a very keen eye on what is happening with Clavio and what is happening with Instacart. That's got to be right there. I'm looking at it, but honestly, we are very focused on what we need to build for our users. Yeah. This is a moment of a lot of change. I think AI is going to ultimately really transform how people do work. The thing we talked about earlier, right? There's so much information. AI deployed everywhere is just going to increase the amount of content by 10x, 100x. That can't be the right solution. It's going to take a while for this transformation to play out. Any big platform change, like look at mobile, look at the shift to cloud, takes a while. The early days of cloud was basically on-prem companies saying, what's the least critical workload I can move over to the cloud just to see if it works. They'd pick a disaster recovery workload or something, move it to the cloud. Then be like, all right, that worked. Maybe I can move a couple of other workloads. And then pretty soon you've got 10, 20% of your enterprise stuff in the cloud. You're like, all right, I got all these things in the cloud. How do I connect them together to run my business better? So that's the transformation that takes place. It takes place over time. It doesn't happen on day one. AI is going to be the same thing. It's going to be a transformation, but it's going to be a journey to fully understand the transformation. And our job and my mission is to make sure that Grammarly can lead that transformation to help our users understand how to harness AI to communicate not more, but better, and to help companies navigate this change because it's not going to happen in one fell swoop. And so we're there as a trusted partner to you. So long-winded answer, but that's what we're focused on. We want to help people drive this transformation. Because of what you do and because there's such a consumer orientation to the way that Grammarly works, you got to think of it just as a really good marketing event. There's a lot of people that didn't even know who Clavio was until this week. It's one of many things, but at the end of the day, we are very focused on just uh, building the company, building the business. That's what I'm focused on. That's what our entire leadership team is focused on. Totally. I also imagine, again, I have no idea. I'm not sitting in your shoes, but the hypiness of it, Yeah. that's also a moment in time. Yeah. By the way, that could be going public, but that could be also a million other things that you do to take advantage of the hypiness. This craze that's happening right now is an incredible tailwind to the Grammarly business. And then we're going to go through the trough of despair for a while and people will say it was overhyped. And then you're going to be underrated again. (laughs) And then you go back. Do you think about the moments in time as it relates to you? I really want us to stay super focused on solving user problems. And even though that seems like kind of an obvious thing to say, but it is easy to get distracted. It's very easy to look around and say, well, look at that person doing that thing over there. Maybe we should do the same thing or let's look over there. And you lose sight of, well, what is the user problem we're solving? And let's just make sure we stay focused on solving that user problem. And so at moments of hype cycle, trough of despair, et cetera, I think it's really important. And what I want to make sure we do is we don't get dragged on the up and then go down to the bottom of the trough. We stay focused on solving user problems. Yeah, It's not a flavor of the day thing. It is just really a core mission. Yeah, And you just need to keep creating user value. That's how you're successful. Yeah, I think that's well said. Even if it's not going public, there's got to be 
investors that want it. Like the whole thing happens all at once. Everybody comes at you all at once. The fortunate situation we have at Grammarly is it's a product that is successful. Our users love our product. Thank you for being a user. We are a successful company. We are generating the capital we need to fund our own operations and growth. And so we can just figure out our path forward. That's what we're focused on. Is the most important metric to you percentage of people that upgrade from regular to pro or whatever it is that pay for it? The reason I ask is because is that not the ultimate measure of user satisfaction? It is a very important measure and that's what drives our business and people pay for it in different ways, right? I mean, either as an individual, you could upgrade from free to the premium version, but also we have enterprises buying the enterprise version of Grammarly to deploy elsewhere. But, you know, one of the things we see is that our free users love the product and many of them may not upgrade right away, but as long as they stay engaged and get value in the product, many of them will upgrade at some point in the future. The product keeps getting better. And so I would love to make sure that everyone can see the value of the product because as long as people are getting value, we have a shot at some point converting them into a paying user. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now. But we see that in our stats that users can be free users for a long period of time and ultimately say, you know, I'm getting a ton of value. I see all the new features Grammarly launched. I'm ready to go buy the premium version. And that's a superpower for us that we can actually have those loyal users that we can be patient. Yeah. There is something magical when you're in five different applications and the little Grammarly green button is just on my browser. It's very satisfying. It's very satisfying. And it's satisfying because it's consistent. It's just in my Gmail, even though Google has its own native autocorrect basically, but then it's also everywhere else. There's just something really special about that. Yeah, I think, you know, communication is so critical and it is so fragmented. Like we're just writing in so many different apps. I'm writing in messaging apps, I'm writing in email, I'm writing documents, I've got my wiki page, etc. And the fragmentation's getting worse, not better. So just having a common, consistent view of your communication across everything that you're doing, I think is the way forward. When you look at the idea of it's about better, not more. It starts with that consistent experience. And then it goes into things like, because we see all of the different workflows that you're engaged in, we have developed an understanding of you, what your preferences are, what your tasks are. And we can use that to help you communicate better, to give you more relevant suggestions. So you're not getting the generic vanilla suggestion that everyone else is getting. You're getting something that's very specific and tailored to you and your needs. These are all the pieces that go into better, not more. Is written communication going up? It's going up, yeah. I'll give you some data that we saw. Like 18 months ago, we did a study with the group called the Harris Poll Institute. And uh, what we found was the average knowledge worker in the US spends about half their work week, 20-ish hours a week, in written communication. Because just think about remote work and the uh, you know post-COVID work environment, globally distributed teams, et cetera. So about half our work week. And then off that 20-ish hours, people spend about a day a week, eight-ish hours, just dealing with the negative effects of ineffective communication. This is everything from, well, I asked you this question, but you didn't really answer the question I asked. You wrote some other stuff. Or it could be something like, 
you know, you wrote a very terse reply and I feel like maybe you don't like me and now we need to get on a Zoom call. To, it's just like death by a thousand cuts. Communicating well is hard. And so that's a day a week. And that day a week of just economic loss is $1.2 trillion a year just in the US. That's the cost of ineffective communication. Now that was 18 months ago. We did a refresh on that study more recently, like six months ago. And what we found was the problem is getting worse. It's getting worse in the sense that we're spending more time writing than before. And the effectiveness of that written communication is going down, not going up. This is a problem where you can't outrun it. You can't say, man, okay, the way I'm going to solve this is I'm going to just write more. I'm just going to send out, I'm going to crank out five times the number of emails. That's not the solution to the problem. You got to actually rethink how you do work. And AI can help you rethink and reimagine how you do work. You're a busy executive. You're the CEO of a huge company. Yep. You probably get a shitload of emails. How many emails do you think you get a day? Seriously. Oh, I'm honestly uh, afraid to even think about that. Between the start of this recording and the end, you think you'll get 100 emails? Possibly, yes. I have very stringent filtering in place. Yeah. So I try to be very efficient about stuff yeah. not coming into my inbox, yeah. but yes. The reason I ask is, do you find yourself, take away the fact that you're the CEO of Grammarly for a second. Do you find yourself writing a lot of long emails? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. And do you think that's a good way to communicate? It depends on the context, right? I mean, uh, some things are better over a video conference. Some things are better in a Slack message. But email is a way that we do communicate yeah. with, with teams, with people, with individuals one-on-one. -on -one. I'm meeting prospective candidates who are looking to join Grammarly. They're, they have questions. I'm responding to them. I'm constantly context switching, making sure I'm finding the right words to express what I want to say, including the right information, thinking about the audience. Like if someone is asking me a bunch of detailed questions about something, I got to think about who am I sending this email to? Do they have a lot of context? In which case I can just assume a bunch of things. Totally. Or do they not have any context? In which case I need to make sure I provide the context. There are all these thoughts going in your head as you're writing an email. This is the death by a thousand cuts. Is There's so much that goes into communicating well. It's easy to write, but it's not easy to write well. Let me ask you a different way. Yeah. As your scope of responsibility in your career goes up, yeah. do you find yourself writing more long emails or less? Oh, I see what you're saying. Just in terms of how I spend my time. Yes. I write probably fewer long emails, but I communicate a lot. My sum total of communication across the company, across our external stakeholders, that's gone up. A big part of my job is communicating. Yeah. And so maybe the long emails have gone down, but writing documents, sending messages to the company, making sure we're communicating regularly using um, video conferencing, that's gone up. And I view that as a core responsibility for me. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I'm an introvert. So it takes energy from you. It takes energy. Yes. And when you came in, you came in as the VP of product to Grammarly. Yeah. It's easier to be an introvert in that job. The CEO job is very extroverted. Let's put it this way. I love it. I love actually interacting with people. I love talking to people across the company. I love talking to customers. I love talking to people who use the product and get value from it. Three or four times a week, I'll get some inbound message from just a happy Grammarly user. Just no other agenda other than to say, I love Grammarly. I use it. Here's what I did with it. And just thank you. I love it. And I love to engage with those things. 
So what I do need though, is I do need to go replenish my energy. And so for me, it's things like just going for a walk, going for a hike, spending time with my kids. And so that's the introverted piece of this is not that I don't like the interactions. I love it, but I need the time to replenish myself. Do you have like a set thing of like, all right, if I have a day with analysts or something, I know tonight I need time on Netflix or something like just like turning it off. Yes. Do you think that way? I do think that way. In fact, uh, I'll give you an example. This past Monday, we had our leadership team. We sat down and we did an all-day strategy on-site. It's not an off-site anymore. It's on-site. We were all sitting in our San Francisco office. And it was a fantastic discussion. Just thinking about our long-term strategy, our roadmap, what are we going to build? How are we going to scale this company? Fantastic discussion. I came out of that feeling energized I drove home from San Francisco back to Menlo Park where I live. I knew I was excited, energized, grateful, but exhausted. And so you kind of just recognize that. And so for me, I was like, all right, let me go binge watch something on TV and just kind of wind down. Yeah. Sometimes, because I feel actually the same way, even though I consider myself an extrovert, I do find myself needing time and space. And sometimes I find myself feeling guilty for doing dumb shit. I feel pressure Yeah. for, I would prefer, let me put it this way, that my recharge time was reading a book. Yeah. It's not. It's just not, that's not what it is. It's good to just know yourself and be kind to yourself, man. Yeah. Like, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Honest answer. Yeah. Was this teed up when you joined in March of 21 as the head of product to be the CEO? It was not. This was not part of my plan. This was not part of the thought process. This was something that just happened. And the reason I took the role is because I deeply believe that we are going to build something really amazing at Grammarly. If I can lead the charge in making it happen, I'm going to do it. Can you talk about in as much detail as you're comfortable with, like, how did that happen? At what point were they like, hey, did you compete for the job? Did they come to you and give you the keys to the car? Like, how does that work? It happened fairly organically with me and the prior CEO and the board. And we just started having some conversations around it and it just kind of evolved from there. And was the CEO the founder? He was not, but he joined very early on in the okay. company's uh, history. Okay. And is the founder still involved in the business? Yeah, we have a couple of founders. They're very actively involved. They're good friends of mine. They're, I see them Often, yeah. they're engaged and active in the company as well. Yeah, that seems to be when the CEO comes in, yeah. it seems to be a real magic when the founders can remain feeling involved. Yeah, Nikesh at Palo Alto has this with Nier. Yeah. It just seems to go right a lot more often than not when the founder is still, or some founders are still there. Yeah. You kind of get lucky with your founders. And I think we got lucky. We have founders who have very low ego. They're just eager to see the company succeed. They're eager to see me succeed in the role. And that makes everything a lot easier. In fact, the funny story is one of the founders is also a product manager. So when I joined Grammarly, this is like three years ago, two and a half years ago, he was uh, not just a founder, but he was going to be on my team reporting into me. And so my question is, uh, when I was evaluating the role, I was like, how does that work? You're on the board, you're a founder, but then you report to me. It's like a very circular thing. He was like, don't worry, it's going to be great. And it was, it was great. And so it, they just play a very positive role in the company's evolution and they're a big help to me. And so I appreciate them. Do you get daunted 
or insecure about taking on this job, I'll give you some examples of things that I thought of. You have been at Google, which is the DNA is B2C. It's a consumer company through and through. The products that you were working on were generally consumer products. You have never been the CEO of a company before. AI is all happening for the first time to everyone. Even though you were getting your PhD in AI, everyone's kind of out over their skis here. We don't really know. You have a B2B business. You've never run a B2B business before. You have probably a sales leader that's doing B2B. That's not your world. That's not your core competency. It's much different than being the VP of product. Like that's definitely your domain, your sweet spot. When you went home to your wife before these things started happening, like, do I? This is serious. You know, like, I don't know. It is serious. Yeah. And you're in the reins of a huge company having all these things that you've never done before. I'm getting more and more nervous as you keep talking. (laughs) In all seriousness, as we are talking about it, I think it is new. And so step one is just being very open and humble and recognize that there's many things you don't know. So I made a conscious decision early on as you as thinking about taking this role is the way that I'm going to be successful in this role is I'm going to take an approach of radical humility. I'm just going to learn from as many sources as possible. I'm going to embrace all the feedback and I'm just going to figure this out in collaboration with everyone else. I'm not going to pretend to know stuff I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to be the seasoned CEO that I'm not. And so I'm just going to embrace radical humility and that's going to be my way forward. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, I don't pretend to know things I don't, but I, what I do bring is a curious mindset, a systems kind of first principle systems thinking approach to things. And so I'm curious, I want to learn, I want to figure things out, but I'm not going to pretend to know things I don't. And I think that's part of the key to making this work well. Yeah. Who's the CEO you look up to? I just recently read Frank Slootman's uh, Amp It Up book. And uh, I think the guy's phenomenal. Why? Just the uh, focus the dedication to excellence, the dedication to just doing things with a high degree of pride in the work product, I think is awesome. I think it's important to do things well. I think it's important to take pride in the work. It's important to understand the impact you have and how you spend your time really matters. I like the way he exemplifies that. You're a really nice guy. Can you do the amp it up philosophy? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, can yeah. you operate that way without having the like gnarliness of a Frank Slootman? Let's be clear on our level of ambition and let's jointly embrace and take accountability and responsibility for the journey we're on together. So what I want my role as CEO is to make sure we all have a high level of ambition to be successful. We understand what success looks like. We're all pointed in the same direction. And then I just want to enable people. We've got great people. We've hired great leaders and I just want to step out of their way and help them be successful. And so what that means is let's really hold a high bar. Let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's understand what accountability means. And let's not be squishy about when we don't meet the bar we set for ourselves. Let's be clear when we meet it, when we don't meet it. To me, this idea of your personality and the way you approach things really matters in terms of how you do things. I feel like I approach things from a place of empathy. That's just who I am and how I like to operate. I'm not going to yell at people. But that doesn't mean that we can't be direct and clear. And uh, I'm a fan of just being very clear. You can be kind, but be clear with people and be clear what expectations are. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to bring. 
That makes sense. Do you have to say no to a lot of good ideas? That's part of the job, yes. Part of the reason I ask, and it reminds me of Frank, because I actually think this is one of his superpowers, is when you're at the helm of a Grammarly or a Snowflake, and you're, in your case, tip of the spear on all things AI, and you've been doing it for so long, there is a lot of optionality, both product-wise, go-to-market-wise, I mean, marketing, you name it. Yep. And I bet at some point it probably kind of sucks. It's like a menu that's a little too big. You know, sometimes it's just easier if there's a few options. Yeah. Do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the easy decisions get made before they come to me. So just by definition, decisions I get to make don't have very clear and easy answers. So, you know, you got to really, and I have a whole thought process around how to make good decisions. We can talk about that if you'd like. But to me, it all comes back to your strategy and having clarity around your strategy. Strategy means a lot of different things to different people, but one very simple way to think about strategy is strategy is choice. Strategy is actually making an intentional decision to do A versus B. If your strategy says, I can just do all things and be all things to all people, it's not a strategy. You're just kind of throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what sticks. That's not a strategy. So, it actually is helpful to be clear on those things. So when you come back and say no, it's not you're not saying no from a place of, well, I'm just going to be obstinate and say no. It is actually, you can explain the why behind the decision you're making. We discussed our strategy. We know what we need to focus on. This is not the right strategy. This is not getting us to the place we all want to get to. So we're not going to do that. So it's clear where the no is coming from. I do want to talk about your framework on decision-making. Yeah, yeah. Can we couch it in a, decision that's come across your plate recently that wasn't very clear and maybe talk me through your framework for how you got to the decision that you ended up making. There's a lot of these things that come across my desk. One very simple thing I'll tell you is user trust is a core piece of how we build products and how we see ourselves in terms of what we deliver to the market. We want to earn and strengthen our users' trust over time. It's not only a core part of our values, it's a core part of our strategy. Part of that user trust is making sure that our incentives and our users' incentives are 100% aligned. That's what our business model does today. We are a product where we only make money when you see enough value to pay for the product. That's it. There's no kind of, well, I'll aggregate the data and I'll make some other revenue stream somewhere else and then I have to explain why that's not counter to our user trust principles, et cetera. It's very simple. It's very clean. It's very straightforward. So that is a very great framework to make decisions. So if there's an idea someone has on, hey, here's an interesting new revenue stream that is going to cause us to move away from this user trust framework, I just say no. Simple. More recently, I had to make a decision about our Grammarly for Developers project. We had an uh, SDK that we shipped out to developers. People were happy with it. We had many happy developers using it, but we made the painful decision to put it on hold and then to deprecate it over time. And it was not an easy decision, but it came from a place of all of the radical change happening caused by AI, us rethinking our value proposition and product roadmap in light of all of these changes and needing to really focus And focus means we can't do everything. So we discussed the pros and cons of making this decision. We sat with the team and uh, 
ultimately the decision-making framework that I used. Number one, be clear who the decision-maker is. Surprisingly, it's often not clear. In this case, it was me. Second, be clear what the decision actually is. Because sometimes what ends up happening is you're kind of not clear what the decision you need to make actually is. Maybe you're trying to launch feature A and some other team doesn't like the fact that you're launching feature A. And and so you come up with this compromise of, all right, let's put it behind a setting so that users can choose whether to use feature A or not. And then when the decision comes, it's couched as, here's what the setting looks like. Should we have this setting? But actually that's not the right decision. You got to that place because you're papering over the real issue, which is should we launch feature A or not? So actually it takes some time and probing to make sure you're clear what the decision is that you need to make. Mm -hmm. Then you make the decision. I heard in this case, people who felt very passionately about both sides of the discussion about should we deprecate it? Should we keep it? Want to make sure you get all the information because you can't make a good decision unless you have all the information. Uh, You want to encourage open and candid dialogue. You don't want people to be papering over the disagreements. You want to create a place of psychological safety where people feel comfortable openly sharing where the root of the disagreement is. So you have that candid conversation and then you make the decision and you're just very clear what the decision is and why you've made it. So people feel like my goal in making a decision is not that everyone is happy at the end of it. It's almost never true, but that everyone felt heard and they understand the rationale, even if they don't agree with it. So then you make the decision. In this case, we said we're going to deprecate this SDK that we had put out in the market. And then you communicate the decision very clearly, internally, externally, so everyone understands what's happening. And I've learned this over time where if you don't communicate it very clearly, people can interpret the decision in different ways. They'll be hearsay. They'll be like, well, I heard that that was the decision made, but here's my interpretation of it. So you get around all of that by writing it down and being very clear. And then the final piece of this is you want to make sure that everyone is disagreeing and committing to the decision. Now, you know, we say disagree and commit, right? That's a big thing in terms of like how we manage companies and get alignment. What I've seen in my experience, my lived experience over the years is disagree and commit doesn't happen as often as disagree and silently seethe (laughs) in the corner. And so you just want to see what's happening and you want to really hold people accountable. We're going to disagree and we're going to commit. It's an active choice. It's not passively just like being unhappy about it, but actively committing to supporting the decision. So those are all the pieces that go into, I think, making a good decision and making it stick. And those that disagree, do you then go solicit their commitment? Is How intentional are you about that? I'm pretty intentional about it. Actually, I want to see specifically through action their commitment to it because It's actually a very unnatural thing. I was telling someone at work the other day that disagree and commit seems like one of those like well-accepted things that people do, but it's a very unnatural thing to say, I disagree with it. And now I'm actually going to actively go champion it. Like I'm actually going to put effort into making it work. So you got to overcome that natural tendency. There's a lot of ego and pride involved. Exactly. So this idea of just making sure that you run a very open and transparent process. You solicit the information and you give people the why behind it. So if the disagreeer in a scenario that I make a decision says, you know what, I really don't like the decision, but I felt that my points were heard and understood and I'm okay with that. 
But even one layer below that, the decision to deprecate this SDK for developers, you make it sound easier than it is. Like, yes, okay, in hindsight, it's better for the focus of the company. But there is a lot of other shit that is weighing you on the other side of that. That shit includes people's jobs. People definitely got hired to do this thing. That decision includes customers that are probably pretty happy. And by the way, not like one or two customers. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a difficult decision. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making this decision. Somebody else below you would. Yep. It includes the weight and magnitude of, by the way, you probably or somebody put their neck on the line, told the board, this is what we're going to do. Now you have to backtrack on that. So your ego and pride is on the line. You look dumb in some ways, right? Like you worry about looking dumb. And so you actually delay that decision for a lot longer than you need to because you feel all of these things viscerally. And along the way, you're not actually sure it's the right decision. (laughs) Like You're doing it with probably imperfect data. I would imagine your confidence interval, you correct me if I'm wrong, is no more than 70% making this decision. I'm curious, actually. 73.7%, yeah. (laughs) Like those are all, are those all not things? They're all things. But at the end of the day, the thing that I have seen is good decisions are the things that ultimately endure and bad decisions don't stand the test of time. So if you run a good decision-making process, you're going to be wrong some of the time, but you hope that if you run a good process, you'll be right more than you're wrong. And ultimately, that's the thing that makes the difference between success and failure. So ultimately, the most important thing is let's get to the right outcome. My success in the market is not going to care about my ego in terms of making the decision. My success can be determined by did I make the right decision or not. So that is the anchor. Let's make the best possible decision with all the uncertainty and all the other things that you mentioned. And then let's backtrack from that. That's the right decision. Let's be clear on that. And then let's make sure we treat the team with kindness and find a way to wind it down gracefully and we want to do things well. Let's not take away from the clarity of the decision that we believe is the right decision. If you waffle there, then everything else doesn't really matter as much. Is there a decision that you've made in your career that did not endure where you were just wrong? Yeah, many. But I'll tell you one example. It was a good lesson is uh, in the early days of Chromebooks, we said we want to build an app platform for Chromebooks because... Windows, people can build Windows apps, people can build Mac apps, but people can't build apps for Chromebooks. There's the web, but the web didn't have all the capabilities that full-featured apps needed. So I was the product manager that built this app platform. And so we built it, we launched it. It wasn't super successful, partly because there weren't that many Chromebooks out there. It was kind of a cold start problem. And then over the years, what ended up happening was the web platform got a lot better. And the need for this app platform just reduced and ultimately became clear that that was not needed anymore. So then I deprecated the thing that I built. And so I was the product manager who put this platform together. Years later, I was running Chrome and Chromebooks as a product lead, and we decided to deprecate the platform. And I sent a note out to my team when that happened saying, I was a product manager that built this thing that we are now deprecating. And you know what? I feel fine about it. It was the right thing to do at the time. And deprecating it now is the right thing to do because what's important is you got to fall in love with problems, not your specific solution to the problem. We want to solve problems for people. 
And the way you solve that problem may change and evolve over time. And that's great. Don't get too hung up on, this is the one true way to solve this thing. And that's the thing I'm going to be completely stuck on because I built it. No, no, no. Stay focused on the user problem. And if you can find a better way to solve it, go do that. Don't do the thing that you did before. Doesn't that remind you a little bit of what's happening with AI today? Which is that we're falling in love with AI as the solution rather than working backwards from finding good applicability of AI to solve problems. That is absolutely what's happening. But look, I think that's how technology hype cycles play itself out. So the way I think about that is just recognize it for what it is and don't get caught up. Just like stay focused. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're doing. Can you talk about the dino game? Oh, oh my goodness. (laughs) The Chrome dino game. Yeah, so you know, Chrome uh, had this very famous error page. Doesn't it still have it? So it has it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe because I left Chrome, I'm thinking in the past tense. But yeah, it had this error page where if you couldn't connect to the internet, there was a little dinosaur image and an error message that popped up. And it was a very cute dinosaur. By the way, we never got a clear answer on the origin of the dino. We heard there were different origin stories. My favorite origin story, I think may not be true, is the dinosaur, the T-Rex, just has these little hands and the hands can't reach the internet. And so it's like these tiny dino hands can't reach the internet. It's like the alligator arms when you're going for your wallet. Exactly. So I I love that story. I hope it's true. And so we had that and people really connected to it. And I remember there was a designer on on the team who said, hey, you know, I think we could actually make it more interactive because it's kind of a down moment. Think about what happened. I'm trying to do something and I just got an error page. That's kind of a moment of suckiness. And so this person had this idea that why don't we transform that moment into a moment of joy and uh, we'll just make a simple interactive game. And it was hugely successful. I mean, I don't even remember the numbers now, but it was probably one of the most played games ever in the world. People would just turn off Wi-Fi so they could go get play the game and they'll play it forever. And I was at my kid's school a couple of years ago and I was telling them what I did. And I said, you know, I work on Chrome and all the kids were like, oh, dino game. And I saw the teacher. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry (laughs) for all the lost productivity in your classroom. What's the lesson you take from that? What I really loved about the dino and the dino game is this idea of just creating little moments of joy. It's so powerful in the product. We are using tech every waking moment of our lives, it feels like. And we're not robots. We're not automatons. We're human beings. We have feelings and we have our life to live. And if the product can just inject little moments of joy and humor and whimsy, it just humanizes our use of the product. That's what the Dino game did, I think, in Chrome. In Grammarly, we have, you know, you mentioned getting these weekly emails and they're kind of, uh, you know, a little bit irreverent, a little funny. We have all these different ways that we celebrate your success. And I've heard from many people, they just love that email. It's just a little affirmation of what they've done that week. And that's Grammarly's way of injecting that little moment of joy. And I actually think it's a good lesson for product developers to think about. Like, yes, you're getting the job done. You know, you've figured out the workflows, etc. But where's the little moment of joy? Where is the user going to just smile when they're using your product? It's funny. I actually think that's a great use case for AI. Being able to, in some way, have a predictive mechanism yeah. for what you will want to feel based on the set of actions that you have taken. Yeah. Spotify does this pretty well. 
Apple actually does this pretty well yeah. in some cases. Right, it feels like an interesting use case. Yes. Yeah. Moments of joy. I have a couple more and then I know I got to get you out of here. You have a book on your desk. It's called um, Dancing with the Butterfly. Oh, yes. Is that yes. still on your desk? It's on my desk at work. Yeah. How did you know about this book on my desk at work? It doesn't matter. Go ahead. All right. I do my work. Yeah. You clearly <laughs> have done your research. But it's funny, the story behind this book is, this is a book that a mom wrote to her autistic daughter. It's a wonderful, very touching book. And I was at work a couple of weeks ago and this book showed up, package addressed to me and it was this book. And I opened it up and I'm like, it's that's sweet, but why am I getting this book? And inside was a note from the author just saying, during the COVID lockdown period, I took the time to write this book for my daughter and uh, it was a very meaningful exercise for me and I couldn't have done it without Grammarly. So I just want to express my appreciation for your product and how you've helped me do this meaningful thing for my daughter. So it was just a very wonderful, touching moment. I shared it with internally inside the company because I always want to connect back to our mission. We're improving lives by improving communication and these are the moments when you recognize the impact you have on people's lives and it's this is why I'm excited to get out of bed every morning. It's uh, when I see things like that. Super cool. I wrap all these things the same. Before I do, anything else I'm missing? I think you had a lot of great questions. I think the key lesson I want to kind of leave your listeners with is AI is an exciting inflection point. It's early. It's going to be a journey. And it's really about transforming all of the technology innovation into useful, usable solutions to help people communicate better, to do their work better. That's a journey that we are on at Grammarly, but I think it's an exciting time to be thinking about this space. Is Grammarly hiring? We are hiring. Yeah, we're hiring here. We're hiring in Berlin. Any key roles that you want to shout out? Across the board. Engineering, product, design, sales, marketing. We're hiring everywhere. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what or who do you think of? When I hear the word grit, I think of our Grammarian colleagues in Ukraine. We have a lot of Ukrainian uh, Grammarians who work at our company who have been through a very, very difficult time since the uh, Russian war that started last year. And watching how they have navigated through it with incredible grit and resilience has been one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen in my career. So that's what I think of. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.